This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and Biography. Today, I'm speaking with journalist and author Steve Kemper about his new book, Our Man in Tokyo, an American Ambassador and the Countdown to Pearl Harbor, published by Mariner Books. Our Man in Tokyo tells the story of Joseph C. Grew, one of America's most experienced and influential diplomats in the first half of the 20th century. Steve draws on Grew's extensively written diary during his 10-year experience as ambassador to Japan from 1932 until the bombing of Pearl Harbor. This book provides the inside story of one man's attempt to avert crisis in the lead-up to the worst war the world has ever witnessed. Steve, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So the first question I'd like to ask is if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and why you chose to write this book. Um, a freelance journalist have been for about 40 years. Most of that time was spent uh, doing journalism with living people, laugh people that I could interview, talk to, ask follow-up questions about, observe them. But about 10 years ago, I started writing books of narrative history about dead people that I couldn't interview, that I couldn't ask follow-up questions, that I couldn't observe. But essentially, my job remained the same, which was to bring them alive, to make them breathe in the present for the reader. And that's what I've tried to do in my last couple of books. That's what I tried to do with Joseph Grew here. So before getting into the, the contents of the book, can you talk a little bit about Joseph Grew's childhood? Uh, what was he like as a kid? And, and you know, was he destined for this sort of role in international politics? According to his father, he was definitely not destined for this role. He grew up uh, the, the son of Boston Brahmins. I, I and mean, he was had a house on he, he his parents had a house on Beacon Hill, which is the posh area of, of Boston. They were old Yankee stock. Um, they had a, a home in Manchester by the sea for the summers. They sent their their children to Groton and then to Harvard, their sons, that is. And then they were expected to go straight into business or banking um, in Boston. And Joseph Grew decided that is not what I want to do. The, the very idea bores me to tears. And so I'd like to go into the Foreign Service. And his father said, no, I think instead you go away for a year and think about it and come back and then go into Boston business or banking. So he went away for a year, had great adventures in the Far East and came home and said, I haven't changed my mind. And so uh, his father really had no choice. He went into um, what was what was became the Foreign Service. There were no professional diplomats or Foreign Service officers at that time. They were all wealthy people, 
the amateurs who knew somebody in politics and got appointed. And Grew was one of the first people who helped to make the Foreign Service professional. Um, and he became a legend in, in the Foreign Service because he served so many places, 14 different posts all over the world, including uh, Assistant Secretary of State, which was second in charge. But to get back to this story, he was in Turkey as ambassador in 1932 when President Herbert Hoover asked him to take on the most difficult post in the world at that time, which was Japan. Why exactly was it that Japan was such a difficult post? What was Japan's political culture like before Gru arrived? Well, the, the precipitating incident, I guess you could say, was the invasion in 1931 of Manchuria by Japan's army without seeking permission from the civilian government of Japan. It was a sign that the militarists were flexing their muscles and they wanted to change the way things were done. They had visions of an imperial empire throughout Asia and a mere civilian government appeared to not be part of their uh, concern. So Gru was sent there to try to talk sense to, to people who might have some sense, to try to get them to withdraw from Manchuria and to try to preserve the relationship that the United States had had with Japan for, um, for quite a while, uh, a good relationship for the most part. Um, of course, that was the dilemma. He was, there were people in Japan who wanted to preserve the relationship, and there were people in Japan who were determined to undermine it or even destroy it. Can you talk a little bit about what that relationship was like? Was it was it a primarily an economic relationship, or were there other uh, things that bound the two countries together? No, it was it was extensive. Um, the the financial relationship was was very important. Of course, uh, I think Japan, I think Japan sent forty percent of its exports to the yeah, U.S. That, or that's something. about the figure that I Close remember. That. Thirty or forty percent was with the United States. Yeah. And they imported, most of their imports came from the United States. And Japan desperately needed both of those, both of those uh, uh, kinds of traffic because it was a, a country with almost no natural resources of its own. So it had to import all the things that it needed to become an industrial power, which it, which it had done, which it had done partly with, through the United States. And it, as a, an industrial power, it needed to sell its, its exports to countries around the world in order to uh, maintain and advance its, its, its economic life. So the depression, of course, came into, came into play here, and a lot of nations put tariffs on Japanese uh, uh, imports, which began to undermine the Japanese economy, which, of course, when, when you have economic instability, it's a perfect, it's a perfect nurturing ground for all kinds of, of bad things. So. But it wasn't just economic, as I said. It was also cultural. There was a lot of cultural exchange. There were a lot of, of, of tourists that went, came back and forth. Um, there was a lot of educational exchange. A lot of Japanese leaders sent their sons to American schools or British schools. The, the military, there was a lot of exchange between the military. The uh, promising army officers went to school often in Germany promising naval officers often went to school in Britain or at the U.S. Naval Academy. So there were many different lines connecting the two countries. And where at this time did power primarily reside in Japan? You mentioned the military before. Uh, 
you know, in addition to the military, were there other uh, group interest groups or, or players that, that held power? Well, this was, of course, exactly the kind of question Gru would ask himself, because as the ambassador, he needed to know where those levers of power were, so he knew uh, whom to talk to and whom to try to influence. So besides the military, there, was, uh, there were several groups uh, that were important. One was the, the cabinet, the politicians. Um, the, the other was the palace, uh, the emperor. The, they were, this, this was a, a vital source of, of power and influence because Japan was a very complicated place. It was, it was supposedly led by the emperor, Emperor Hirohito, who was the head of state, the commander in chief, and the spiritual leader. Um, he was considered a god, literally a god in Japan. And so nothing that he did could be wrong. Therefore, he was not allowed to make any decisions because <laughs> human beings tend to make mistakes. Emperors, divine emperors are not allowed to make mistakes. So he seemed to have all of this power, and yet he really had very little power in some ways. But his advisors um, exerted a lot of power on the army, on the government, on the public. Uh, the military, the same thing. Uh, the cabinet was was appointed not by not by politicians. They weren't elected. The the, the prime minister was appointed by the emperor after con- after consulting with his palace advisors. So you had this right there. You see this this crossover between the imperial palace and the civilian government, and then the prime minister uh, would. He appointed the cabinet members, except for two. He couldn't appoint the, the, the minister of war. That was appointed by the army. And the minister of, of the navy. That was appointed by the navy. So the prime minister had no control over those two appointments. And he had no control over whether those two people at some point could say, I don't like the way you're taking the country. We quit. And then the cabinet would fall and they'd have to start all over again. I think Drew dealt with it was something like 14 foreign ministers and 10 prime ministers because the cabinets kept falling in Japan because there was so much turmoil and volatility in the government there. So I was wondering if you could talk about what Gru's first few months were like in Japan. Uh, how did he adjust to Japanese society and what was it like for him working with his colleagues back in Washington? His life in Japan when he got there was... Um, a mixture. He was trying to do his job and convince the Japanese that they should withdraw from Manchuria and uh, recover their reputation in the international community as as a a good member of that community instead of as an aggressive bellicose member. He failed at that and he wrote back to Washington, there's, I don't see any chance of doing that. They're not going to leave Manchuria. They're not going to leave Manchuria. They, they wanted Manchuria, by the way, for its coal and because they had they needed coal for their war plans and they wanted it as a as a spillover spot for colonists because Japan was bursting at the seams with uh, with population that was overrunning the island. The um, as far as his relationship with Washington, D.C., that was a, that was a really interesting part of the story because it was only later in the year that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected president. And so Gru didn't know if he was going to be uh, reappointed or if he was going to be fired because Gru was a Republican and 
Roosevelt, as as we all know, was a Democrat. They were they were acquaintances, friends. They 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 knew each other from Groton and Harvard. They called each other Frank and Joe, um, but they weren't friends. They weren't good friends. And Grew wasn't sure what Roosevelt would do towards him or with the country. He wasn't sure Roosevelt had the ability to run the country. He didn't know him well enough. He eventually became a a huge supporter and admirer of Roosevelt. Um, and liked him a lot. Roosevelt uh, reappointed him three times as ambassador to, to Japan. He, he recognized how crucial Grew was in, in his post there. But with the State Department, it was a slightly different story. Um, Cordell Hull came in as Secretary of State. He didn't know much about foreign relations. Um, he was a good man a, of, of strong principle, but he was not a flexible man, and he wasn't really... Um, interested in being flexible, especially towards Japan. He came in, as he wrote later, with the idea that Japan was uh, deceitful and you couldn't trust them ever. And so that was not, of course, a good start for diplomacy for Gru. Gru didn't realize that in, until later on in his tenure in Japan. So he had a, he started off with a, with a good relationship with the State Department and got, I would say, increasingly frustrating for Gru as the 1930s wore on. Can you give some examples of, of the, uh, the frustration uh, in addition to the example you gave, of, gave about Cordell Hull? Well, I suppose the, the, the biggest one, he grew thought that, that Hull missed opportunities to improve relations. And it was almost always because Hull wanted to stick with his principles, which were very high and very inflexible. Um, an example of this is, um, which, which I had no idea about until I did the research for this, is that the Prime Minister of Japan, Prince Konoye, um, wanted to have a secret meeting with Roosevelt in late summer, early fall of 1941, just a few months before Pearl Harbor, to try to uh, have a, a summit that would avert war. And of course, Gru was very enthusiastic about this idea, pushed it hard, and he could not push it through the State Department. He couldn't get it through Cordell Hull and his chief financial, his chief uh, advisor on the Far East, Stanley Hornbeck. They insisted that Japan meet certain criteria before they would agree to a meeting. And Gru thought that was putting the cart before the horse. He said, Let, let's have the meeting, and then we can Im impose these these." Uh, these requirements if it doesn't work out. And Gru didn't want to do that. I mean, uh, Hull didn't want to do that. He said, no, you basically accede to our requirements or we're not talking. It, it was uh, striking to me to, to read that. And, and Gru was very frustrated by that. Part of the book that I found uh, particularly interesting was your description of the uh, German ambassador to Japan, Herbert von Dirksen. Uh, can you talk about what the German, Japanese, and U.S. relations uh, were like uh, right after Hitler came to power? Early on, Hitler was, was funding Chiang Kai-shek and his, and his army in China, um, which, of course, Japan 1937 went to war with China. But eventually, um, the Nazis wanted the Japanese to become their allies because Hitler had designs, as we all know, on Europe and then also 
uh, going to the east into the Soviet Union. So he was constantly trying to get Japan, tad Japan into a, a military treaty. And Japan had no real interest in doing that. Japan had its own plans, namely, namely taking over the Far East. And it, it thought that if it allowed itself with Hitler and Hitler did something like declare war on the Western powers, that Japan might be drawn into a European war, which it didn't want to do. But the presence of, of Nazis in Tokyo became very pronounced because there were a lot of people in the military who wanted this alliance very much. They wanted to be part of the new world order that they saw Hitler um, leading, and they w- didn't want to be left behind. And it's, of course, this this desire became more and more intense as after Hitler invaded and started biting off chunks of Europe. Japan wanted to bite off chunks of the Far East, and they wanted to be right there next to Hitler. An incident that you talk about is the uh, USS Panay uh, incident. Uh, can you talk about that and the significance of this for U.S.-Japanese relations in the mid-30s? Yeah, this was a, a group thought that there might have been a declaration of war over this. This was 1937, the end of 1937. It was, it was uh, uh, early on in uh, Japan's war with China as Japan was approaching Chiang Kai-shek's capital at Nanjing and boats were fleeing from the the advance of the Japanese forces including the USS Panay which was a, a United States gunboat it was on the Yangtze River it would patrol the Yangtze River to protect American interests there China maybe to back up a bit um, was was at that point there were a lot of interest, Western interest, Western businesses throughout China uh, as part of the open door, the so-called open door, which had been negotiated um, earlier by the Western powers and Japan and China. So the Pan A was fleeing the fighting. It was uh, 27 miles away from the fighting. And yet Japanese naval bombers uh, strafed it and sank it and then came back by strafing the people who were trying desperately to, to swim to the reeds on the riverbank. And then army and then military boats came up the river and machine gunned the sides, went aboard looking, no doubt, for survivors to kill. So this was and, and there were there were US flags draped all over this boat. It painted on the side, draped and you know, flying from the mast, draped on the decks. Every place you looked, it was the Stars and Stripes. The Japanese said, we didn't see anything that showed it was an American boat. It was clearly a lie, which the Japanese stuck to. So there was a, a quite, a, quite a tense week when the, the two nations were trying to... One nation was apologizing abjectly. That was the Japanese government for the military, um, the military bellicosity of these people. And on the other side, it was the U.S. saying, well, keep, we, we need you to compensate us. We need you to punish the people involved. And we need you to promise it won't happen again. They did compensate the U.S. They did punish the people who, who were behind it. They did not stop doing it. This, this, was, this became, oh, you know, a, a constant thorn in Gru's side and in the U.S. government's side. These, the Japanese military was intent upon bombing properties that had the U.S. flag on them in China. 
And th this came not long after uh, something, something you t discussed, which is a, a, a fake news uh, newspaper article about U.S. attempts to do reconnaissance because of Charles Lindbergh's plane needing to divert because of weather. Uh, can you talk about just the sort of the general temperament? Uh, why, why was why did it seem like the U.S.-Japanese relationship was just breaking down? Uh, was it just because of this, you know, nationalistic bellicosity at the heart of Japanese military? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty complicated, but if the Japanese military needed enemies uh, and the most obvious one was the Western, the Western powers who had heavily influenced Japan, had made Japan this, this, the strongest power in Asia, uh, Japan had based its development upon Western ideas of government, industry, education, military. And yet the military wanted to take Japan back to some some golden age uh, of tr in traditional Japan. And so that meant turning away from the West. That means you had to make the West the enemy. And that meant that conspiracies and plots and propaganda campaigns were all directed towards that end. And it was very intense and it could become ludicrous like that the one you just mentioned that that Lindbergh he uh, you know he, he had to land because of clouds he couldn't fly and this Japanese military guy thought no he was doing reconnaissance you can always find as as we <laughs> see very vividly today you can find conspiracies you can find the underside of anything and turn it flip it and turn it into something sinister and that's what the military and the Japanese media were were geniuses at doing. Can you generally talk about the political convulsions in Japan in the late leading up uh, in the late 1930s and just the increasing turn towards totalitarianism? Well, it started um, in the early 30s and then worsened throughout the decade. There was actually a um, there were a lot of assassination attempts. A couple of Japanese prime ministers were killed. Uh, a number of business people, top business people, were killed because they tended to support uh, the West and were opposing militaristic plans. There was even a coup, an attempted coup in Japan in 1936. Um, a, a number of military officers and their soldiers, um, they took over military headquarters, they took over a section of the city and demanded that the people that they wanted to be um, leading Japan be put into the cabinet. This was um, put down without, by the way, without without a shot, they killed a bunch of people and then presented their demands. The, the emperor said, these are supposed to be my soldiers and I did not tell them to do this. This is a rebellion and I want it put down. And so the, the army who had in many ways encouraged these sorts of feelings among the young officers, or at least had not uh, stopped them from having these feelings, finally had to do something to, to put these, these young radicals in their places. And they did that. They, um, they arrested them, they killed them, and, but then they proceeded to continue <laughs> Their, their plans for imperial glory. So it was kind of unstoppable. The, uh, every time that, that there would be some possible reason to turn away from militarism and aggression, 
though the, the military leadership would back down in the face of these these young officers who were radical and were insistent upon invading Japan, upon uh, invading Indochina, upon developing a plan to invade the United States. Prince Konye, uh, who is he and what are his views and his influence on Japanese society? Well, he's a fascinating figure. He, he was the protege of, of Prince Sionji, who was, who was the Genro. The Genro was a, a group of palace advisors who would help the emperor choose the new prime minister. But by the time Gru got there, the Genro had dwindled down to this one man, Prince Sionji. He was the only one left. He was in his 80s. And uh, Prince Konoye was, was the protege of Sionji. He was um, sort of predestined to be prime minister. He was groomed for it. He was from one of Japan's ancient families. Uh, he'd been educated, well-educated. People liked him. He was young. Um, but he started getting influenced by this radical element in the military. And he started moving away from Sionji's um, sympathies with the West and towards totalitarianism. And in fact, he, he served as prime minister twice. Uh, the first time he got Japan into the, to the war with China. That was in 1937. Uh, um, and when he was, got them deeply embedded in that, he quit. Uh, because he was he was a weak man. He he did not like he did not like to be um, in the middle of conflict, and so he quit. But then he came back um, in 1940 at the insistence of the military, and that's when Japan declared the, itself a one-party government. And basically, the Diet, which was the parliament, had no power at that point. Um, and Konie. Uh, he, he, he had the rhetoric, but he also realized eventually that this rhetoric is, is, has taken us into China and we've lost, we've lost a lot of our people in China and it's impoverished my country. And now the military is talking about invading Indochina or even invading British colonies um, and starting a war with the United States and Britain. And I'd better do something because this is all going to be my fault as well. And that's when he came up with the idea of the secret meeting with FDR, which didn't come off. And so when uh, that didn't work, he quit again. And the person who followed him into office was General Tojo. I was wondering if you could discuss the lead up to Pearl Harbor and just the eventual decision for the U.S. to go to war. Uh, and and just you know where was was Gru during all of this? What was his uh, perception of of this lead up and the events? Well, at one point, Gru had been acknowledged as the the, the best informed um, diplomat in Tokyo because he he had of course a military attaché, commercial attaché, all of his uh, his uh, undersecretaries. They were all tasked with with funneling information to grew about every aspect of Japanese life so that he could send it on to Washington, D.C., so that policy could be formed with good information. As Japan became more and more totalitarian, censorship became typical. It became the norm, and it became uh, dangerous for Japanese to visit the embassy. It became dangerous for Japanese to be seen or suspected of giving information to Western diplomats. And so 
grew sources of information began to dry up. And so although he knew he had direct he had direct conversations with the foreign minister and other close contacts, he was not getting the breadth and depth of information that he was getting before. He knew that things were going south, but he didn't know how badly. He did know that that they were getting worse and worse and he even sent a telegram to um, to Washington, I believe in early November, that um, the Japanese may do something suddenly and violently against the United States. Um, and of course, he was absolutely right about that. And that was not considered um, possible by most people in Washington. They didn't think that this little country would dare to declare war on the mighty United States. So there was a misreading. Um, and, and Japan, by the way, thought that the United States would crumple if Japan dealt a severe enough blow, that the United States would not fight, that they were a nation of pacifists and isolationists with no stomach for um, the hardships of war. Both sides misread the other pretty badly. You begin the book with a, a pretty interesting description of Gru's just general reaction to the lost potential uh, between the Japanese and U.S. relationship. I, I think somewhere he's writing in 1942 after Pearl Harbor. Uh, and you discuss a, a very strongly worded uh, review that he had written about the failure, the policy failures, something that he chose not to publish. Can you talk about uh, these pages that are now uh, missing from, from history? Yeah, that was his his what grew considered his final report from Japan. He wrote it when he was interned in Japan after Pearl Harbor. Everybody in the embassy spent six months interned in the embassy um, before they were uh, released through negotiations with the Japanese and American governments. And then he wrote on the way home on the on the ship. Um, he wrote a long letter to Roosevelt, a cover letter that he put with his final report. And when he got back to to the United States, the very first thing he did was to go see Cordell Hull and hand him this report, which contained a lot of his thoughts about his tenure in Japan and a lot of questions about why the U.S. government had done certain things and not done certain things. And foremost for him was the refusal to meet uh, Konoye um, in the late summer, early fall of 1941 to try to maintain peace. And Cordell Hull did not receive this well <laughs> at all. In fact, threw the pages back across the desk at Gru and uh, commanded him to destroy every copy he had of it. Well, Gru was a good soldier, and he did destroy that report. Uh, but he also put in the, uh, the record that these pages were missing, that, that they had been destroyed upon uh, request by... Secretary Hull, but he left he left the, uh, the the letter to Roosevelt. That's in the archive. So it's fascinating to me that, um, in other words, in other words, grew dis- he, he he obeyed the instructions, but he also left a trail, saying there was something here, and it's worth thinking about. And my my approach in the book is that his 6,000 pages of his diary, which he kept in Tokyo, all of his dispatches back and forth to the State Department, his, his personal letters, telegrams, um, speeches, and the news clips that he saved, all of these things, his final report is 
can be discerned the outline of it anyway in all of that massive documentation and that's what the book assumes how do you uh interpret this 10-year period uh you know do you think that that grew did the best that he could do you think that uh, it was just inevitable that that the u.s and japan would eventually fight I think both. I think Gru did the best that he could, and I don't think that anyone could have stopped it from happening. Um, so uh, that's deeply frustrating for Gru, of course. He considered he considered his tenure a failure because an ambassador's main job is to keep the peace, and he couldn't do that. Um, but he comforted himself, and I think he was right, with the knowledge that he had done everything possible. Um, to, to keep the peace. And it was overwhelmed by this imperialist ambition, this militaristic, nationalistic um, hunger to take over territory. And, um, you know, it was, we know what happened. I mean, that, that's the thing about my book. For, for Gru, for, for, for most Americans, Pearl Harbor is this, this, this horrible beginning. But for Gru, it was a tragic ending. Uh, that's uh, that's well put. Uh, you know, with that being said, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what Gru's experience was like after his ambassadorship, uh, what he did, and just talk a little bit about what his life was like also uh, after the war. Well, when he got back, um, Secretary Hall sent him barnstorming around the country giving speeches. And of course, everybody in America wanted to hear what Gru had to say because he'd spent so much time in Japan. He knew them better than just about any other American at the moment did. So I think he gave 250 speeches in his first year back or something like that. And um, he was adamant that about two things. One, that the militarists had to be rooted out of Japan or there would not be a lasting peace. They had to be destroyed. And second, that there were good people in Japan who did not want this war, who were, who, who had, who, they were going to fight it because it was their country, but they did not want to fight. They had not wanted to fight it. And that needed to be kept in mind for after the war. So that, that second part eventually got cut out of the speech because uh, it didn't fit with the war propaganda. Um, Hull, after Hull uh, retired due to sickness and a new Secretary of State came in, he appointed Drew uh, the director of the uh, Far Eastern Desk, which was a, a perfect job for him. And then eventually, um, the next Secretary of State appointed grew Assistant Secretary of State, so he was second in charge. And during the last year or so of the war, grew often acted as Secretary of State, while the, um, the, Secretary, the Secretary of State was off doing other business. He also was involved in figuring out the terms of surrender for Japan, because it became it was clear by that point that Japan was going to lose. It was just a matter of time. And Gru felt that he knew that if if Japan was not allowed to maintain the 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 emperor, the emperor um, as a as a position, that Japan would never surrender because they had devoted they would they would they would die to a person rather than give up the emperor. So he said. Just it doesn't have to be Hirohito, but just as a, uh, a position, we, we need to assure them that that can continue, and that was accepted at first. And then by the time 
Truman went to Potsdam to talk to Churchill and Stalin and Chang, it had been cut out uh, because by that time we had the atom bomb and we, we, we didn't need to, you know, Japan didn't need to have any say in anything at that point because we weren't going to have to invade. It wasn't going to be a bloodbath. It was only going to be blood on one side at that point. Um, so the Japanese refused to surrender because the emperor was not mentioned in the surrender terms. And then the two atom bombs were dropped. And that's finally when uh, they agreed to surrender if they could maintain the emperorship. And grew. Um, we don't. I don't know. He didn't write about it, but he had something to do with the final terms, which were vague enough about the emperor that allowed the, the Japanese right wing to surrender. So uh, uh, that's what happened. And on the day that the emperor gave the speech, saying that we were Japan was the war was over and Japan was surrendering, Gru resigned from the State Department, and that was his last day there. And Gru would go on to live for, for another 20 years. What was his uh, post, post-war life like? Well, he, he, he wrote his two-volume memoir, Turbulent Era, which is fascinating. And he, you know, he, he, he stayed active in some ways, just peripherally on, in politics, but not much. He played a lot of golf. He loved his family. He spent his time in uh, in New England and in Washington D.C. at his homes, um, and devoted got his papers put in order and donated them to Harvard, which was a great benefit to me. And um, died in 1965. Never went back to Japan. What do you think that people today can learn from Joseph Grew and his experience? We live in a world full of conspiracies and hateful rhetoric. Uh, I think we could learn a lot from Gru's approach. Diplomacy depends upon rationality, on logic, on, uh, if not friendship, at least civility. Um, it, it depends upon a willingness to compromise, to, to, see, to, to, to search for um, the enlightened self-interest on both sides. I think that those things, which are the basis of diplomacy, are sorely needed around the world today and in our own country. And Gru was devoted to them. Um, but when those things get overwhelmed by illogic, irrationality, hatred, refusal to compromise, um, we have what we have now. And it's, it's not a good place to be. And for you personally, is there anything after this that you are, are thinking of writing? <laughs> uh, that's always a funny question for a writer because you either are terrified because you don't have anything I know. Or you're, um, <laughs> but for, for me uh, this is probably my last book I don't think I want to climb Everest again uh, so I, I'm 71 and I think I think it grew as, as my curtain call well if you uh, ever decide to change your mind we'd love to have you again on the New Books Network thank you so much I appreciate it, Caleb.